0: Pastor Lance, who is our lead pastor at Midtown, is going to facilitate this part of the, of the session. And so we look forward to hearing. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for the invite. Uh, I want to say thanks to everybody coming out today, too. It really is a, a blessing, a really sweet thing to see so many of you that we worship with regularly, but then so many of you who have made contribution uh, to not only what Forex as a whole, but specifically years at, at Midtown. And uh, so it's really a sweet thing to see you. So thanks for being here. want to say thank you to you as well. Uh, This has been a delight. I think one of the things that I've always appreciated uh, and loved, not only about your teaching, but really the ethic and the heart of RTS, is that we get at God through the Bible, and you've just demonstrated that in such a great way already this morning. I think uh, my first year of seminary, when I went residential in Orlando, you taught a systematics class for me, and uh, it felt very homey to me. It just, uh, it awakened something. I'll give you one illustration that I remember seeing you were talking about justification by faith and what faith was, and you were just going through the string and getting more and more animated about faith like a straw, or like, look at this, and there's a passage <laughs> where it says, open your mouth and receive, yeah. and uh, we're reading that, but then you combined open your mouth of faith with the idea of an ice cream cone being placed <laughs> on your tongue, yeah. and uh, there was something about the childlike picture of that that really delighted me and made me fall in love with the gospel again, so
1: thank you. Well, I love you. ice cream, so. You do, yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good thing. So, I have some questions in my pocket. So, when I pull up my uh, phone, just so everybody knows, I'm not ticking or talking or gramming or booking or twitting or whatever else uh, could be. I'm trying to find the, the curated question list. But I do remember the first one, so we'll start off practical.
1: Yes.
0: You made a, a point early on about what is, what is shared, uh, specifically, I think, in the illustration from Matthew 28, the baptism is a naming ceremony that rightly includes the name, the shared name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. So one of the questions that came in is how to properly think about this in all of the practice of our faith. So here's a very, very practical day-to-day, probably happened this morning uh, sort of thing. Is there a proper way, a right way, or how careful should we be in addressing God in prayer? Hmm. So one question, for instance, there's faith traditions where you would end a prayer always in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hmm. So it includes all three, whereas you know, perhaps it's a much more common thing in our circles to pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, are there more careful or less careful, and maybe even if we particularly extreme, uh, maybe wrong or right ways to consider practices in worship or in praying? Do we have direction for that?
1: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the... The, the fundamental rule to think about when you think about prayer is that scripture is a, gives us models for prayer. So whatever scripture does, so scripture speaks good Christianese, right? Uh, whatever scripture does, then, then we can take that a, as a model. And so, uh, you know, taking the lead of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter six, the the kind of most customary way we pray is Our Father in Heaven, right? Um, and and this is commonly we pray in Jesus' name, although the name there is I think a reference to the divine name. It's that's the authority by which we pray. But but there's also a sense in which we're we're acknowledging that um, our Authority to call God Father, our Father, is something that's mediated to us through the Son, the divine Son. Who taught us to pray? Our Father. Jesus. And he taught as one who had authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, that's how the Sermon on the Mount concludes. So here we have the divine Son giving us authority to call his God our Father. And what we we know from Paul is that it is the Spirit of the Son sent into our hearts who enables us to cry, Abba, Father, which is the same language that Jesus used in the Gospels to pray. So, we share in the family. Sometimes a couple gets married, and all of a sudden, you know, a woman might start calling the husband's Father, dad. What's happening? You, you have your own dad. What are you doing there? Well, the idea is that a new relationship has been created through marriage. And, and in a sense, in that kind of customary way of praying, this is what we're acknowledging. Through the Son, the first person of the Trinity is now our Father, and by the Spirit we address him. But what we see in Scripture, while that is kind of the customary way of praying, and I think most Christian prayers tend to reflect that model. Um, Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And who's the name, who, whose name are we talking about there in Romans seven? Um, Romans ten, Jesus, right? We can call upon Jesus' name in prayer, and because the Spirit is the Lord, we can call upon the Spirit's name in prayer. So, okay, give me chapter and verse for that. Well, on the one hand, I think the sound uh, conclusion from Matthew twenty-eight and nineteen okay, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, God's name is placed upon us, and therefore we are invited to what? Call upon the name of the Lord who is placed on us in, in baptism. So right there, I think you're authorized to call upon the Spirit in prayer. But the, the example that, I, that I, I, I like to see is Ezekiel chapter 37. And it's a bit of a, an odd example, of perhaps, but remember Ezekiel is before this valley of dry bones. And he tells, the Lord tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones. And so he speaks to the bones and then the bones come back to life. They don't come back to life, actually. They come back together first, right? And then what does he say? Prophesy to the breath or prophesy to the spirit. And then what happens? The Holy Spirit animates the body and they come alive. Well, I think this is an example of, of really the relationship between word and spirit. Okay, Ezekiel is proclaiming the word, but then he's calling on the spirit to bring his blessing, and so I think that's an example. Um, uh, one more, one more kind of helpful example that I'll mention, and then if if you want to follow up with with bad examples, um, talk about those as well. Uh, a, a common pattern of prayer that you see, for example, in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, going back to Thomas Cranmer in the English Reformation. You see this practice of concluding a prayer, not in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, literally, but in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, uh, you say we ask this in the name of Jesus. You're praying to the Father. So you ask this in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you, Father, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, that is a Trinitarian way of praying as well. And it's a very good, I think, example.
0: Great. So maybe uh, maybe the thing there would be, it's an opportunity for us to practice the language of Trinitarian yep. theology. So there could be healthy ways to practice prayer, yep. um, but not necessarily immediate Cringe! Run to throw them in jail if you don't always include the fullness of Trinitarian thought in every prayer.
1: Correct. Okay. Correct. So there's. License. I think. I think. Well, let's think of it. Here's would be a negative example. If if praying to Jesus as if he's not the Son of the Father, as if he is the Father. Right.
0: Tell us so we don't make Confusing a mistake. How would the that persons.
1: Well, this is like, you know oneness Pentecostalism. Right, There aren't three distinct persons. These are just different labels for, for one and the same person. So, Father Jesus, that kind of language. Hmm. No, Jesus isn't the Father. He's the Son of the Father. That's where you get into trouble. But again, if we're following the pattern, the biblical pattern, there's actually it opens up a, a wide vista of ways of praying, I think.
0: Great. I appreciate it. So, another set of questions, and I'll, I'll get specifics there depending on, on how, we, how we go, is essentially what I would, what I would call the, the sort of, uh, it's not a conundrum, um, but I think it makes it difficult in some ways to imagine this. So, if, if God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit had been presented um, independent, or I don't even know what you call it, or independent, uh, without the incarnation without Jesus having God becoming flesh, as you mentioned in the last, last session. Uh, there are some ways, I think, where many questions about the way the Trinity works, what the Son has that has been granted to him, uh, for instance, his will. How, how can Jesus truly pray, your will but not mine be done? Um, what, how are there instances where Jesus says things like, only the Father knows the day or the time uh, and so maybe as a, as a general question, and then we could get to some of the specifics, are there ways in which Trinitarian theology gets more difficult due to the incarnation and the specific work of Jesus the Son in redemption, or in, in history, and what ways are those? Are there, are there helpful tips for keeping those, you know, sort of in mind or in view? I guess maybe the, the brass tacks of it is, in some ways, does the incarnation break I know it doesn't break, so I'm throwing you a softball there. You just say no and then move on to the next question if you want. But does the incarnation sort of break Trinitarian theology in some ways?
1: No. Okay, yeah, Um, great.
0: We're set. But
1: it it does make things more difficult for us. Um, And so, Imra, I gave you two rules for kind of thinking about the Trinity. Scripture describes what the three persons hold in common as one God Scripture also speaks of what personally distinguishes the persons from each other. Father is the Father, the Son is the Son of the Father, the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son. What the incarnation does is add at least one more rule. So when we speak of the Son, we can speak of what He holds in common with the Father, and we speak of the distinct personal way He holds what He holds in common with the Father. Right? What he holds in common with the Father is that he has life in himself. But what distinguishes in the Son is that he's received that eternally from the Father as a son receives a father's nature. Because the Son, the Word, became flesh, we also have to speak of what the Son holds in common with us. Because in assuming human nature in Mary's womb, He now not only shares all things with the Father and the Spirit as one God, he shares all things with us except sin. And after all, sin is not essential to being human. Sin is a defect of human nature that came as a result of the fall. So what that means is Scripture speaks of the Son, of Jesus Christ, always speaking of one person, okay? Jesus does not have multiple personality disorder. He is the Son of God. He's the Word of God. He's the image of God. But it always speaks of him in two registers, both in terms of what he holds in common with the Father as God, and in terms of what he holds in common with us. And the classic text that, uh, you see Augustine makes a big deal about this in the fourth century, beginning of the fifth century, And then much of the tradition kind of follows him in this regard. The classic text for understanding these two ways of speaking of the Son is Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Though he shares the divine nature with the Father, it's not something he felt like he had to hold on to to protect He's, he's very confident in his deity. He's not an anxious deity, okay? But what did he do? He emptied himself, and that doesn't mean he ceased being God, by the way. That's, that's a misinterpretation of that text. In Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. What it means is that he emptied himself by what? Taking on the form of a servant. That is, the high God humbled himself to walk among us, Not only as God, he walks among us as God, I will walk among you and be your God, but also as a human being. And so what that means is, here's how Augustine says it, using the language of Philippians 2. He not only shares the form of God, he shares the form of a servant. And everything that the son does after the incarnation reflects both realities. He shares the form of God, he shares the form of a servant. Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. Divine omniscience, right? But he says this in Hebrew or, well, we don't know. What was he speaking, right? Maybe speaking Aramaic with human lips. Lazarus, come forth. He raises him by divine power, which he has, which only God has to raise the dead. But he's speaks this command with his human voice and from eye sockets wet with tears because he'd just been weeping in the face of his tomb. Okay? And say, so, well, which is it? It's both. Both things are true of one person all the time, now and forever, even at the Father's right hand. And sometimes we think, like, he was God, then he quit being God and became human. And then after he did that human stuff, he quit being human and became God again. Eh, that's not right. Okay? Without ceasing to be God, he became human. And now and forever, he is the God-man. Okay? So the Heidelberg Catechism, which is one of the beloved catechisms in the Reformed tradition, says, you know, he talks about what do we believe about Christ ascended at the right hand of the Father on God's own throne? That my human nature is sitting at the right hand of God glorified in Christ. The pledge and promise that we will eternally be in God's presence as well. So yes, it complicates things um, and a lot of Christological heresies, think about this, like Trinitarian heresies often follow from not obeying both rules with respect to the Trinity. What they hold in common, what distinguishes them. Christological heresies also follow from not holding the additional kind of rules in place.
0: Got it. So, other than the, my- the mysteries of the ontological nature of God, <laughs> we add the incarnation and have to hold that yeah. mystery intention too. Uh, in wonder, hopefully. Yes. Right? Okay. So, in that spirit, this question I think sums up a lot of this. Uh, this person just writes, yeah, but like, how? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That, uh, that question sort of just is hanging over all of this, right? Um, Brian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> again. Again, Brian sent that. Okay. Uh, I'm going to ask a question that in some ways I think is contem- contemporary uh, or has come into view. Um, from 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5. Mm. Uh, there's been much discussion lately, I think, uh, over the, maybe the last decade or two. And I think a lot of help, maybe a, a desire for people to help uh, understand the relationships of men and women, specifically in marriage. Uh, conversations concerning roles and being equality but role difference and things like that. And the question are, is, are there contours that we should be careful to follow in the way that we describe? Here's a for instance. Maybe you've heard this or considered something like this. Uh, you know, a father can be the head of a family or he can be the head of a wife um, in such a way that it does not show inferiority of, of a wife, in the same way as, you know, the father is the head of the son, but they're equal and have the same. So, this is a, this is a common uh, way to speak about these things. And so, some of the question is, uh, what is analogous or okay there? Where would you be careful? Um, how should we talk about, and are there ways to talk about this properly?
1: Yes, um, quite a can of worms. (laughs) Um, So, without getting into the kind of the history of this too much, what you see happening in some conservative reformed evangelical circles kind of towards the latter part of the 20th century is a Certain way of talking about the relationship between the persons of the Trinity as a model for relationships between husband and wife, sometimes specifically, but sometimes more broadly, all men and all women should relate to this, each other this way. And, and here's how that kind of way of talking commonly went. Well, the reason we know that husbands can have authority over their wives in marriage, Ephesians five and that wives can be called to submit to their husband's authority, and yet they're equal, is that. That explains how we distinguish the father from the son. The father has authority over the son, and the son submits to the father, and yet they're equal. Now, I'll come back to that in a second, because there are plenty of texts in Scripture that describe the son submitting to the father's will and obeying the father. Okay, so you can see where, where, where that line of thinking would, would, would potentially come from. But having just looked at John 5, having just looked at Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, we should know from our little twofold rule that that's bonkers as an analogy. Why? Authority is not... An example of personal naming, what distinguishes the person from each other. What's an example of? Common naming, what they hold in common. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus shares his father's authority 100%. Okay. Part of the way the New Testament kind of pictures this, Philippians 2 is a perfect example. Uh, He's given him The name that is above every name, that every knee should bow, every tongue should confess. He has seated him at the right hand of the Father. The throne in Judaism is the the symbol of the uniqueness of God and of God's unique authority. When it says that Jesus shares his Father's throne, that's a way of saying he shares his Father's authority. Well, what then do we do with 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that... Uh, talks about the son submitting to the father he's conquered death he's going to give the kingdom back to the father and all these things well a couple things to be said about that one is in 1 Corinthians 15 it's very clear that we're focusing on the son in his office as the second Adam okay the first Adam was called to do what subdue the earth and he failed to do it because of disobedience. The second Adam, the son incarnate, is going to complete what the first Adam didn't do. So we're talking about the son's submission to the father in his specifically human nature and human vocation as second Adam. You say, well, but then that, doesn't that sort of kind of cut the, the, the knot for uh, Ephesians 5? husband's the head of the wife, the wife called to submit to the husband. What happens if we don't have an analogy in the Trinity for that? Well, we don't have an analogy in the Trinity for a lot of things the Bible tells us to do, and we do it because we believe God is good, and his will is good, and, and his laws are the laws of an open-handed father who's not trying to keep something back from us. The one prohibition, the one thing, the one prohibition is trying to keep from us is what? Death. But his laws are a path that leads to life and flourishing. And we, we should have seen this because it's actually, this is where the Trinity does become a model for marriage. Okay, Ephesians 5, where the, Christ is called the head of the church, his bride. And she's called to submit to him. And that's the analogy. Well, what, where does his headship Begin in terms of what's its first example that's mentioned there. He loved her, and he did what? What's the verb? Gave himself for her. When when this when the son Philippians two said he's in the form of God did not consider quality God something to hang on to anxiously. What's the expression of? the generous and non-anxious deity who rules the universe, he comes down. He gives himself. He he saves us. The son is being just like the father in that way, just like the spirit. They are the one God. That's how God is, which means that if that's how the high king of heaven is, that anyone who sits in any position of authority, civil, domestic, whatever it is, they should be exemplifying that kind of authority. Okay? But it's the authority that the three persons share as one God. That's the example. And yes, Jesus is the supreme expression of a, in redemption. But, but the Father is that way. The Spirit is that way as, as well. Right? What's, what, how does the whole story conclude? That heavenly throne comes to earth. Do you know what kind of condescension that involves on the part of the triune God? That he would dwell and will to dwell with lowly creatures like us. Right, so, so you don't need to mess with the Trinity to, to make sense of marriage, and I would highly recommend against
0: it. Got it, I see. So, uh, so one of the things there is that if we're, if we're trying to get into the inner life of the Godhead in order to think about a human marriage, we're working in the wrong direction and just don't mess with stuff in some ways.
1: Yeah, gotcha. yeah, or Or, or, be or careful. find the analogy elsewhere. Or else, yeah, yeah.
0: or just obey. Or just, That's, just, just obey. Dr. Swen so no, says just so obey. Sometimes no, it's just okay, just obey. Yeah, just obey. It's God gonna be is fine. good. Okay, uh, I have a question for you that, uh, that is, as far as I can tell, it's not in the list, uh, but I have a microphone. You guys <laughs> notice that? Isn't that something? Uh, so I have a question for you, if you have a favorite or a pet or a workable analogy for introducing the Trinity. So my experience has been that every time someone says, oh, you know what the Trinity's like, and then they talk about lemonade, or they talk about water, or they talk about, you know, whatever it is, that it starts to, to break down right about the time they said, well, God is kind of like, you know, the sort of at the beginning. Right. And it feels, it feels as if you're using an analogy and you end up saying that's what God's like, that it starts to be a head scratcher and a little dangerous. But sometimes analogies work just like your coffee one. I was just testing it. Here it is again. Here he starts, so Dr. Swain, who's orthodox and wonderful on this stuff, he starts using an analogy, but you know where the analogy goes? He said, God's not like right. that, right? right? So is every good analogy for God a not like God, where we just imagine everything and we're like, God's not like that, he's not like that? Or is there a, this is what God is like analogy that we could use to help people think about the Trinity?
1: Yeah. Um, bad news and good news. Uh, the bad news is no, there really is not one analogy um, that we can use to explain the trinity and here 's why that is okay God is transcendent, he has made us in his image. The most glorious dignity that we 've been given as creatures is to be made in god 's image. We are like God in some sense, okay the greatest indignity that human beings can commit in relation to God is to make God in our image. Okay? And, and, and that's what idolatry is. Right? Deuteronomy 4, don't make an image of God in anything in heaven, in earth, and none of the earth, not of human beings, not the sun, not the moon, not the animals, not the fish, none of them. We're like God, but God is not like us. In Isaiah 40, the Lord says, to what would you compare me that it should be my equal? Okay. So it, it, I, this is a negative analogy again. But, you know, if I, if I pulled out my phone and, and pulled up a picture of my family, okay, and I said, that's my family. Now, imagine if you know, my wife and four kids walked through the door and, and, and you looked at the picture and you looked at them and you said, liar, 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 you know. You said your family is. Oh, I got a text from. There's the Swain gang text thread right there. The kids texted me. It's called. It's called the Swain gang. Yeah, it's called the Swain. It really gang. is. Yeah, we're okay. we're a little bit violent. So, <laughs> so, you you just told us that your family is approximately three inches wide. And five inches tall. You just told us they were two dimensional, and now we're seeing that. Okay, yes, your wife is kind of short, barely five two. Uh, but those boys, are they're much taller than this. And surprise, they're, they're three-dimensional beings. You are a liar. That wasn't your family. what What's the silly thing we understand? The picture is similar to them, but they're not similar to the picture. And that's not... We're like God, but God's not like this. And, and any time we try to start taking an analogy of something on the creaturely level, we're actually saying... It's like we're saying God is three inches wide and six inches tall. So there's not any one analogy. That said, what Scripture does is gives us multiple analogies that give us some sense when they're working together for what the Trinity is like. So we talked about one in the second session, John chapter 5. Jesus' opponents are mad because he's saying God is his own own father that he's basically that is jesus is the natural born son well one thing we know about a natural father-son relation is is what they share the same nature and that's and they say, therefore they share the same nature they save the same powers okay so like human sons have opposable thumbs <laughs> why because human fathers have opposable thumbs. They have the the, the power to do things that puppies don't have, okay? That kittens don't have. Uh, Ask me about cats, okay? Next question, but... (laughs) And that analogy is built into the father-son relationship. They share the same nature, right? And so, Jesus is a true son of the father, We are distantly children of the father, but he's a one-for-one son, okay? The other thing the father-son helps us appreciate is that they really are distinct persons, right? Son is not an attribute, right? Wisdom is an attribute. Goodness is an attribute. Power is an attribute. But when you talk about a son, you're talking about a distinct person from a father, that also gives us that, but but here's the thing. That analogy by itself actually doesn't get us beyond tritheism. Why? Same thing we talked about earlier. Three pastors, three human beings. Okay, like Father, like Son. Oh yes, you're both you're both the same kind of being, but you're not the same being. Two persons, two different beings. So so Scripture adds to that analogy. A complementary analogy, and you see it in John 1, you see it in Colossians 1, you see it in Hebrews 1. John 1, 1, the second person in Trinity is not only described as Son, but he's described as what? The Word. Colossians 1, the Son is not only described the Son, he's also described as what? The image of God. Hebrews 1, the Son is not only described the Son, he's called the Radiance of the Father's glory. Now, here's what's fascinating about all three of these titles. They're all titles that are related in one way or to another to a a Jews in the time of the New Testament and, and preceding the New Testament talked about divine wisdom. Remember wisdom in Proverbs 8 who starts talking to us and says he was with God before creation and as a master working and God was rejoicing in him and he was rejoicing in God? Why is that interesting? Well, it's another analogy for thinking about the relationship between the father and the son, okay? While the father-son analogy helps us to, to think about two distinct persons who share the same nature, okay? To talk about God and his wisdom, God's wisdom is not something distinct from him. Your mind is internal to who you are. Right? If I say, if I talk about myself and I talk about my mind, I'm not talking about two different beings. I'm just talking about one being in two different ways. Well, the reason that I think the New Testament consistently, and it's amazing, and we think of John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1, which are very kind of important texts for thinking about the Trinity, the reason they put these two analogies together, I think, is to say, no, there's no... One analogy that you could kind of project upwards. But in a sense, the whole world God has made in some way to to be a teaching tool. And so we call him the Son, the second person of the Son, to remind us he's distinct from the Father, equal to the Father in every way. But we call him the Father's Word, the Father's image, to remind us that he's not a second God outside of the Father, but he's actually internal to God. One God with the Father. Truly distinct. As persons, but undivided as God. And again, how does that work? What's the right answer? We have no idea. Okay. Like, but yeah, how? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay.
0: So a couple more questions, and then we're uh, we're already heading on uh, noon here. This one might be might be difficult. Um, again, it has to do with the work of the Son in the incarnation, and specifically in His death and His resurrection. So, is there a, a proper or a way to think about, how do we think about Jesus crying out, why have you forsaken me? So, what kind of, what kind of suffering took place in Jesus the Son, and how can that relate? So, there's, there's a wrath of God toward the Son there. It's, uh, and how can we speak about that? Like, can I use an example of my cat when I was a... Didn't, were we supposed to go to cats? I don't know.
1: Yes. But I
0: had a cat. It was they are a, objects of wrath. Yeah, so they are objects okay. of wrath. So when I, I had a cat who was nice for a few years, but then became wrathful, just terribly wrathful. We had to get rid of that thing. Buffy, they have, they have no bye. Soul. Yeah. yeah. So is there a way to speak about the God the Father's wrath being poured out on God the Son without committing heresy? That's really the question of the whole morning. Can we talk about this without being heretics? And how do we do that? Does that make sense? I know yeah, that's a massive yeah, topic. It, there
1: is, there is. And it, and it, and it basically involves, we've, we've got to kind of follow all the rules that Scripture gives us to think about this. But when we do, there is certainly. So, let's think of Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. So, so it was God's good pleasure... Punish the servant. Okay? So already we're talking about two different things here. God was pleased to punish. Now you need to think of, like if you're punishing a cat, uh, you have no pleasure in the cat. Cats are not worthy of love. Sorry. Sorry, I teach theology. It's my job to tell the truth. It was the will of the Lord to, 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 to bruise him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as one God, share one will. Okay? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me, Galatians 2.20. And how did He do so? Through the eternal Spirit, who is one in willing our salvation. And how is that one loving will expressed in saving us? And the Son's becoming incarnate to bear God's wrath against our sin. Now, here's the thing. Only the Son is incarnate. Only the Son bears God's wrath. Okay? And so this is why it's very common for Scripture to speak of you know, the Father giving the Son, uh, the, the, the curse of God coming on the head of the Son, and so forth. Because We can speak of something that happens uniquely to the son by virtue of the incarnation, okay? But there's a sense in which, of course, the son who loved himself and gave himself for us also hates our sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Well, how did he destroy the works of the devil? By giving himself to suffer the consequences of his hatred of sin. So he's one with the Father. And, and same with the Spirit as well. And so the mystery of the cross is great. You have another thing going on there too where, where sometimes certain things that are common to the three persons are appropriated to one person. Don't want to start down that path. That's another little rule that we didn't even talk about today. But, so oftentimes we will ascribe things to the Father that we don't mean it's unique to the Father it's common to all three persons. But there's something appropriate about ascribing it to the Father. Well, the Father gives the Son. He pours out His wrath upon the Son. But we actually know that all three persons are expressing wrath against sin, right? Even though the Son uniquely bears it in His body on the tree.
0: Sure. I think uh, one of the themes here is stick to the way that Scripture talks about things. Yeah. And we're on solid, solid ground. Yeah. It also... Um,
1: well, sorry, because I, I, yeah. my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. Again, sometimes I say, well, okay, what about that, though? Isn't he experiencing being forsaken by God? Doesn't that disprove the point I just made? The same Jesus also says, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. And so a lot of times I think the text that seem to trip us up, it's because we're just looking at one text. Orthodoxy at the end of the day for me is about... Taking all the Bible verses, <laughs> heresy is about just taking some.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's good. It's uh, it's comforting in some way. You keep adding to the rules. Eventually, this is like this is just like grammar. That's where you started. That's right. Uh, you know how grammar was. You learn the first rule. It's always I before E. Well, except after C and in cases of right. And so there's a lot of things that have piled on. But I think in some ways it's 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 comforting to know that it's mystery upon mystery upon mystery, because if God were something easy or simple, He would be too much like us, I think, in some, yeah. some ways. So, you know, maybe one of the things here is to drive all these mysteries, drive you to, to worship and thank God that He's other, you know, rather than, rather than saying God is confusing and, and impossible, to thank Him that He is, in fact, other. I think we're already after afternoon. I don't know how much of a hard stop we needed to have here, Paul, um, if we were at Forest Midtown right now, Susan Colligan would be hovering over the the thing, going like this at me, with her <laughs> finger. Uh, not because of the time, me. She wants that. She's like you, like this. So we're uh, we're just about here, wrapped up, uh, and I think that would be the close. Anything to to follow up afterward, or should I just pray us on out? Thank. Can we thank Dr. Swain for being here and Dr. Uh, <laughs> about? I want to remind you again. If you're curious about it, a good popular level book on the on the Trinities and a Crossway Theology series that that you wrote, and uh, you should all go buy lots of copies of that because I think you get like a hundred bucks a copy, right? Oh, Every time, at, some, least. at least. At least. Yeah. yeah. So just line line our dear doctor's pockets as much as you can uh, by buying those. Uh, why don't you stand with me? We'll stand together and we'll we'll pray as we conclude. Father, we believe that you look kindly and with your blessing upon a morning like this because we have gathered to pursue an understanding of who you are. You love your name. You exalt your name. You're committed to your name and its glory through all generations in all the earth forever. And so I ask that you would help us to glory in your name as well. And as much as possible, as much as you could grant to us here in our fallenness and in our fallibility, help us to get it right. We want to honor you properly. And we don't want to stop short of being in awe and wonder of who you are. So we thank you, God the Father. We thank you, God the Son. We thank you, God the Spirit. I pray that as Scripture has spoken here this morning, that it would dwell deeply in us to give us a richness of life. God, I ask your blessing on our worship, that we would have triune worship as we consider all that has been done to save us from our sins. God, I ask your blessing on Dr. Swain and on his work. I pray that you give him clarity, you give him insight, help him to be concise and precise, not only in his his duties administratively with the seminary, but in the times that he is writing and thinking and teaching God, give your favor to this man as a, as a servant of the church. I thank you for the way that he's poured himself out and for the quiet moments, the very private, ongoing, arduous moments of seeking you and studying scripture. God, thank you for those moments in Dr. Swain. Bless him and honor him for those. I pray too, personally, that you give him a depth and a sweetness and a joy, an abiding life and joy in his marriage. Bless his children May they walk with you and experience your favor, your grace amongst God and men. I thank you for the opportunity we have to gather this morning as one church. Bless us now and send us off into the world uh, to be a blessing uh, to all that we encounter. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.